From Public Radio International, this is America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. On today's program, we listen to Beyond the Border, the Future of U.S.-Mexico Relations. Recorded in May, the town hall discussion linked experts and audiences in Washington, D.C. and Mexico City. Our host for the event was Joshua Johnson of the program 1A from WAMU in Washington, D.C. Thank you all very much for being here. Thank you, Madeline. I'm Joshua Johnson here at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Let me introduce our panel before we dive in. Here on stage with us here at George Washington University is Peter Scarry, a political science professor at Boston College and a contributor to the Weekly Standard, the Boston Globe, and National Affairs. Next to Peter is Doris Meissner, a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute. She served as the commissioner of the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service during the Clinton administration. And next to Doris is Jose Cardenas, the director of the Vision Americas Consultancy. Everybody, welcome to Beyond the Border. Thank you all for being here. Before we get into our discussion, let's get a little context for why we are here and hear a few clips from President Trump. Of course, everyone is familiar with some of his rhetoric on the campaign trail. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Of course, Mexico has repeatedly refused to pay for the wall. Days after Mr. Trump became the president and took office, Mexico's president, Enrique Peña Nieto, canceled a planned state visit and addressed the Mexican people. Lejos de unirnos, nos divide. Mexico no cree en los muros. Mexico no pagará ningún muro. President Peña Nieto said, far from uniting us, it divided us. Mexico does not believe in walls. Mexico will not pay for the wall. And shortly after Mexico's president said that, President Trump modified his stance. Well, we're working on a tax reform bill that will generate revenue from Mexico that will pay for the wall if we decide to go that route. A new wall still has not been paid for. The latest budget that Congress passed specifically excluded allocating resources for that. Jose Cardenas, let me start with you. What is your reaction to all of this? Is this still just political campaign rhetoric, something said to drum up the president's base, or does all this rhetoric have a real-world impact? Well, I think it does have a, uh, a real-world impact in terms of what I believe Donald Trump his goal is is to improve border security, whether it's a wall or the latest uh, technology, surveillance technologies that we have. I, I think that the wall has drawn a, an outsized image of one American's uh, frustration with Washington's uh, tone deafness to the implementation of our immigration laws. And number two, it does serve as a, uh, a metaphor for keeping America safe. But um, what we hope for is that it is something that we do in cooperation with the government of Mexico, and that is improving security on both sides of the border. Well, Doris Meissner, let me come to you with that. You, as we said, served as a former commissioner of the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the precursor to what we now call ICE. Talk about the situation at the Mexican border today. As I understand it, Illegal border crossings are down, even though there are still a number of issues with border security. What are we dealing with today between the U.S. and Mexico on the border? Well, I'm glad you're starting with that question, because to talk about U.S. 
Mexico relations and immigration, you'd have to start with what the facts and the reality are today. There are now more people born in Mexico returning to Mexico than coming from Mexico to the United States. We have no net new illegal immigration from Mexico. Now that is not to say that there are not some people crossing the border illegally from Mexico, but it is dramatically less really at a 40 to 50 year low. And that's because the era of large scale illegal immigration from Mexico is over. Circumstances driving illegal immigration for decades have changed. They've changed in particular since the recession. There are now less jobs demanding illegal labor in the country to, to be filled. That's not to say that there are areas of the country and sectors where there is job demand, but it's nothing like it was in decades earlier. So the decline in illegal immigration from Mexico to the United States is primarily economic? It's always been an economic flow, but Mexico now has changed as a country. Mexico has steady, good rates of growth. It's producing jobs. Its demographics have changed so that the fertility levels in Mexico are now on a par with the United States. That means that there are far fewer younger people entering the labor market. And the enforcement at the U.S. border has been very strong, and that's a deterrent. Peter Scary, let me bring you in as well. Pew Research has found that while the number of Mexican undocumented immigrants has declined in recent years, the number of Central Americans crossing the border is up, many of whom are fleeing violence and political instability. You have talked about the difference in the way the U.S. deals with immigrants versus the way we deal with refugees and that our policy should be mindful of both. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I certainly have drawn attention to that distinction between refugees and immigrants. Certainly the distinctions exist in law. And when refugees are admitted in, they're admitted under certain, uh, certain provisions of our laws. But the political and policy rhetoric has been very much to blur the distinction between refugees and immigrants. And I think that's for, for understandable reasons, political reasons. I think the advocates on both sides, refugee and immigration advocates, have their reasons for blurring that distinction. But I think the net um, result is what I see certainly among my students that I teach at Boston College, but I don't think it's limited to them, to them at all. They tend to believe that just about anybody knocking at our doors whether you're from Mexico and you're a worker or trying to re re get reunited with a family member or you're fleeing gang violence in Central America and you're a mother with her children, the argument seems to be the same. It's, it's a compelling argument that we have to open our doors. That's a conundrum for us because one reason why the American public is so riled up, segments of it are, and have been so responsive to the irresponsible rhetoric of somebody like President Trump is that the rhetoric on the other side, if you will, is so over the top. We don't have ways of making moral distinctions, it would seem to me, between refugees and immigrants. 
Let's talk a little bit about the differences we see in how the Trump administration approaches undocumented immigrants and how the Obama administration did. Back on January 25th, President Trump signed an executive order which expands the list of undocumented immigrants prioritized for deportation. With us tonight in the audience is Patricia Zaper. She's with the Catholic Legal Immigration Network. Patricia, can you talk about what you are seeing in terms of the effects of this executive order and, and what it's done, perhaps the people that you deal with in your organization? Well, the short answer is people are terrified. Those who were not considered priorities for deportation under the previous two administrations, at least, are now threatened. And we see stories every day of families like the, the one in Ohio, Maribel Trujillo, who, mother with four children, never broken the law, never done anything except be here without permission. Um, and she was wrenched from her family and sent back to Mexico under terrible circumstances. There are stories like this, and they're accumulating all over the country. Um, people have good reason to be terrified. Policies of enforcement have totally changed. Even at the border, people who present themselves at the border seeking asylum increasingly are being told to go away, and that actually violates the law. Based on what you're seeing with your work, what do you think the American people need to know about what you encounter with your clients as we think through our relationship with the U.S. and Mexico? The people who are being targeted increasingly are not the bad hombres that the president said he was going to go after. Yes, the bad hombres, people with criminal records are a part of it, but that's not where it stops. I think too many Americans don't understand that the family down the street that they think is so charming and love the way they all work together and play soccer together, they may well be of a mixed immigration status and the mother is at risk for deportation, the father may be legal, the kids are U.S. citizens. People don't understand how intricately woven into our everyday life are the immigrants who are at risk. That's Patricia Zaper with the Catholic Legal Immigration Network. Thank you very much, Patricia. Peter, I wonder if I could play off of something that Patricia brought up in her comments about this nuance in terms of families who do have mixed immigration statuses. Maybe the president's rhetoric is very blunt, but more broadly in the administration, do we think that there are grown-ups in the room who have a more nuanced view, who are working on immigration policy to deal with these more detailed issues, or is it just too soon to tell? I'd like to think that General Kelly is a grown-up in the room, Secretary of DHS at this point. I think there are those elements in the government, but I think, frankly, the rhetoric is a sort that's going to overwhelm them. And um, I think I would take issue with one thing that Patricia Zippor just, just put forward, which is that the American people don't understand the complexities here, that families are mixed and that they have equities here by the way, and I've argued that I think we should do as much as we can, as fast as we can, as simply as we can, to legalize the people who are here undocumented. But having said that, part of what I'm suggesting is that the nuance uh, that's needed isn't just from the rhetoric of the president, it's nuance from the advocates who tend to uh, exaggerate their claims and blur important distinctions. Well, we do want to get more specific. We certainly don't want to have any exaggerations or blurred lines here in this conversation. And I appreciate the specificity that we've gotten so far from our guests here. But there are two more guests 
in Mexico City that we would like to add to the conversation. Rodrigo Cervantes is the Mexico City Bureau Chief for member station KJZZ Public Radio based in Phoenix. Rodrigo, welcome to the program. Hello, everyone in D.C. and everyone here in the audience in Mexico City. Also with us from Mexico City is Monica Serrano, a professor and researcher at the Center for International Studies at the College of Mexico. Professor Serrano, welcome. Hello, everybody. Rodrigo Cervantes, let me start with you. Talk about the reaction in Mexico to Donald Trump, first as a candidate and then as president. What's that been like? Well, as far as we've documented in our reports here in, in Mexico, there's definitely some tension and the Mexican community feels very uncomfortable with Trump's rhetoric as a candidate and as a president. Let's remember also that the tensions between Mexico and the United States are not new. Think also about what happened in the past administration, the Obama administration. As some of the uh, immigrant activists in the United States know, they would call Barack Obama deportator-in-chief, right? And that's because during his administration, there were more deportations than in any other administration. So the tensions are not new. Probably what's changing is the rhetorics, it's the tone, it's also the ideas that are more poignant. It's becoming more aggressive, it's becoming more clear that there are a lot of issues between both nations that need to be clarified or need to be improved. I do want to get to Professor Serrano at the College of Mexico. Professor, I'm curious what your take is about some of Mexico's concerns if the United States takes a more unilateral approach to border security. Let's play out President Trump's rhetoric, his policy thus far. What are some of the key concerns, practical concerns, that you are hearing from Mexico these days? From the Mexican perspective, the idea that the whole debate about immigration and border security is referred to a sense of security in the U.S., uh, the, the concept itself of undocumented migration carried with it the message that there was a legitimate demand for these jobs. I take the point of Doris Meisner in stating that the economics right now, perhaps given the, the pace of economic growth, are such that there will probably not be a huge increase in demand for Mexican labor. But the reality is that there are other aspects, I think, of the U.S that lead one to think that the demand will continue. If we consider, for instance, the way in which there are five million people with Alzheimer in the US, and, and those five million people with Alzheimer are in need of one-to-one -one care, that factor in itself, I think, suggests that there is a demand for this type of labor that unfortunately was not considered to be regulated within the framework of NAFTA. And NAFTA was silent to these realities, and I fear that what we may see in Mexico is a backlash um, that is not going to be a very fortunate process for either the U.S. or Mexico. We want to get to some questions from our audience and also from the audience that has been listening in to our program from Mexico City. Let me start with a question from Mexico. My name is Antonio Sempere. I am basically a content marketer here in Mexico. I see a position of willful ignorance that emanates from the top down. This rhetoric that they are using, in my case, I'm only feeling fears that this relationship is only going to deteriorate over time. So are we there yet? I think they have deteriorated. The question is, 
whether we can get back on a solid footing. The way in which Mexico has been characterized over the last year and the statements that have been made that are so confrontational uh, really has threatened decades of careful work by both countries, governments as well as civil society, in getting a better understanding of our neighbors. And that's had manifestations across many, many realms. We have a more complex relationship with Mexico, arguably, than any other country in the world because we are neighbors. Everything from water to trade to uh, immigration to completely interdependent labor markets. And so it's in our interest, I would argue, as Americans, definitely similarly in the interests of Mexico, to try to get this discussion between our two countries back onto a polite and productive footing. Jose, let me come to you. You've worked at USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development. How much of the solution for border problems is pure border security with walls and troops and, and border patrol agents? And how much of it needs to be through soft power like foreign aid and diplomacy? As Ms. Meisner uh, noted earlier in the segment, that uh, so many of the immigrants crossing the border are originating in Central America, and more specifically, the what's called the Northern Triangle of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And what we're seeing in Central America today is an upsurge in violence, gangs, drug trafficking. Much of that is obviously caused by Americans' insatiable habit for illegal drugs. So we have a responsibility as a country to help those countries deal with the fallout of much of the crime and violence that stems from the drug trade. And so, not to be partisan here, but I think that the previous administration talked a great game on helping Central America with this security problem that is forcing people to uh, flee northward for sanctuary in the United States. What I hope to see in this new administration is resources through AID and through our security services, uh, meaning DOD, of course, to help these countries deal with the violence that is the originator of so many people that are trying to cross the border illegally. The security of the border doesn't start at the Mexico-U.S. border. It starts 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 miles downrange. Doris Meisner, from your experience with INS or what you've seen since, can you think of examples where this balance between, I guess we could call it hard power and soft power at the U.S.-Mexico border was done wrong or done right? Is there an object case you can think of that points to the way that the U.S. has made this balance and the outcome? Well, I think the last administration took a little time to realize that this surge that really developed in 2014 was a long-standing, deeply embedded phenomenon. It could not just be confronted with immediate enforcement measures. And it did go to the Congress, and it did go to the countries. And the Congress funded 
$750 million out of a request for $1 billion. That money is now being, we hope, invested into good projects in those countries. So it was a recognition that you need to do the longer term along with the immediate. But I do think that the better example really is Mexico because NAFTA and the signing of NAFTA in the early 1990s, a trade pact that has continues to be vilified in the United States, continues to some extent to be questioned in Mexico because of what it has brought about in the rural sectors, nonetheless was an absolute crossroads. And it was a crossroads because among other things, it said that the two countries were sharing a common vision of a future destiny that was connected and that the development of Mexico as an economic entity had to happen over the longer term. And that was a precondition for changes in Mexico that have now evened the playing field quite impressively. That's a good segue for us to take a break. And when we come back, we'll take a closer look at NAFTA and at trade policy between the U.S. and Mexico and maybe where the two countries will agree. We are speaking to Peter Scarry, a professor at Boston College, Doris Meissner of the Migration Policy Institute, Jose Cardenas, the director of the Visión Américas Consultancy, and in Mexico City, Rodrigo Cervantes of KJZZ Public Radio and Professor Monica Serrano of the College of Mexico. I'm Joshua Johnson. Glad to be with you. You're listening to Beyond the Border, the future of U.S.-Mexico relations on America Abroad. That's Joshua Johnson, host of the WAMU program 1A, leading our town hall discussion. This event was recorded in May, but the online conversation continues. If you'd like to weigh in, you can find us on Facebook or on our website at PRI.org. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. On today's program, we're featuring our Washington, D.C., Mexico City Town Hall discussion recorded in May. Our panelists on the campus of George Washington University in D.C. are Peter Scarry, professor of political science at Boston College and frequent writer for the Weekly Standard, Doris Meisner, former commissioner of the INS. She's now a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute, and Jose Cardenas, formerly of the State Department and USAID. He now leads a consulting firm called Vision Americas. And in Mexico City, we're joined by Rodrigo Cervantes, Mexico Bureau Chief for Public Radio Station KJZZ in Phoenix. Also joining us, Monica Serrano, a professor of international relations at the College of Mexico. Let's go back to our host, Joshua Johnson from WAMU's program 1A. Back again to Beyond the Border with America Abroad and 1A. I'm Joshua Johnson at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Let's talk now about trade, particularly NAFTA. And let's start again with a few clips from President Trump. For months, Mr. Trump has criticized the North American Free Trade Agreement, calling it the single worst trade deal ever. NAFTA has been a terrible deal, a total disaster for the United States from its inception. That was back in January. But after a conversation with Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in late April, President Trump had a different stance. So I decided rather than terminating NAFTA, which would be a pretty big 
you know, shock to the system, uh, we will renegotiate. So what about the future of trade and commerce between the U.S. and Mexico? Last year, American goods and services trades with Mexico totaled nearly $600 billion. That makes Mexico the second largest market for American exported goods. Jose Cardenas, let's try to get behind some of the rhetoric. The primary complaint against NAFTA that you hear is that it's a job killer. Ever since NAFTA took effect, it's taken away jobs from a variety of countries, commoditized a lot of trade and labor, and it's just suppressed job markets across North America. Does that hold water? What did NAFTA really do to jobs? Well, I think that when you look at these sort of major transformative trade packages, the saying goes, you always have winners and losers. We don't so much lose jobs as jobs shift. They shift into new sectors, new industries, taking advantage of new opportunities. Inefficient jobs, inefficient sectors migrate to where production is more efficient. Uh, we have to understand that NAFTA, it's more than 20 years old. And so it was signed in a different time. It was before e-commerce, for example, before the rise of China. So today we have a number of issues that no doubt need updating. It seems we're in a good place right now where Mexican negotiators can sit down with U.S. negotiators and pursue an updated agreement that's in the best interest of both countries. But I think that free trade has long ago established itself as a primary engine for economic growth. The world will never go back to this sort of mercantilism and barriers, high tariffs, protectionism. It's just not going to happen in today's world, and I think that the United States needs to be at the forefront of leading the world into a more integrated economic system. Peter Scarry, what do you think about the real-world impact of NAFTA on jobs? I want to press uh, Jose Cardenas a bit, if I can. He asserted that we don't lose jobs, jobs shift. Well, that's true as an aggregate, perhaps, but the fact of the matter is, substantial numbers of individual Americans are negatively impacted. They lose jobs and don't necessarily find other jobs, or they have a hard time finding other jobs. You know, it's not just Donald Trump who sort of created this issue. One of the things we've known for some time, going back to the early 1990s, at least when the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations did a survey and focused very clearly on the two issues where there was a huge gap between the American public and our elites was immigration and trade. Immigration got all the attention at the time and has been getting a lot of it, but trade was up there too. I do see where both of you are coming from. I do take your point, Peter, that there are plenty of people who don't feel the net effects of jobs. You know, if there's a net gain, but I lost my job, I still lost my job. So I think I see that piece of it. On the other hand, there is a net effect. So I see Jose's piece of it, that there's this macro effect of NAFTA and there's the micro effect of NAFTA. And maybe, depending on what end of it you're on, both of you can be right, but the emotion among the American people can be very different depending on what side of that equation you landed on. Professor Serrano, what do you think? You're absolutely right in saying that NAFTA is on the table to be modified or to be revisited. The problem is that 
the motivations leading to this moment are not the most uh, promising or the most enlightened. Yes, you have a deficit between the US and Mexico, but the reality is that the bulk of that deficit is in fact intra-industry trade. That means that these are components that go back and forth the border and that Mexico supplies one part, Canada supplies another part, that part gets shifted in some way in the US, comes back to Mexico or goes back to Canada. It's intra-industry trade. And what the deficit tells us is not necessarily that the total amount of goods that the US buys from Mexico creates that imbalance. That's not the way to look at trade anymore. Rodrigo, what do you think? I completely agree that there is a huge misconception sometimes on how deficit works, particularly if you connect it on how President Trump used the term deficit to try to attack or accuse Mexico, right? If you take a look at the, the deficit that the United States has with China, for instance, Mexico is just one-fifth of that deficit. And the big difference is precisely that there is like this continuous exchange of workforce, goods, money that is going between Mexico and the United States. So there is definitely a misconception on the importance of a deficit and why a deficit exists. If you take a look also in more specific terms, like looking to the economies of some American states, you're going to see that some of these states, including Arizona, for instance, have a deficit with Mexico. And Mexico is the number one business partner for the state of Arizona. The other thing is that to blame Mexico on those jobs, I think, is to be short-sighted because those are jobs that if experts are right, these are jobs that are bound to disappear in the medium and longer term. According to some experts, 80% of globalization is driven by technological change no matter what, and that is unstoppable. To bash NAFTA as the worst trade agreement, to talk about undocumented migrants as criminals, to talk about the border as an absolutely necessary measure to keep America safe. These are slogans that carry with them a lot of inaccuracy. And we were talking about NAFTA being revisited. It would be fantastic if the revisiting of NAFTA would lead to an enlightened reform of NAFTA in which we would be prepared to talk truth to these realities and to meet them as they are. Let me bring somebody into our conversation who maybe can kind of speak to this intersection of the micro and the macro. This is Craig Regelbrugge, and he represents the National Trade Organization for the Horticultural Industry. Where, where does the industry stand right now in terms of what NAFTA really means to them? Well, Joshua, in the agricultural sector, this is a case of how you see the stage depends on where you're sitting in the audience. And it is clear that there are specific commodities, specific sectors that are that are doing well. What's changing is Mexican agriculture is becoming much more sophisticated. And so now if you're a Western Michigan fresh vegetable grower, you are competing in green peppers and cucumbers and, and tomatoes, even in your season with Mexico, which is a very different dynamic. But here's, it's interesting that you're talking about both of these issue components because they collide when we talk about agriculture and agricultural policy in the following way. We are intensely dependent upon Mexican labor in our agricultural system here. Um, it's three quarters of our farm workers, there's about two million of them working each year on America's farms, three quarters of them, of them are foreign born. The vast majority of those are Mexican nationals. 
half of the total population is unauthorized to be in the United States. This is a case of we have desperately needed the work that they do, and we have utterly failed to provide a rational system for them to do this work here. NAFTA, when it was negotiated, labor mobility was sort of too hot to touch, and I think we missed opportunities. Today, if we get back into it, we should be embracing labor mobility, particularly in the agricultural sector, on a bilateral basis because there is a win-win opportunity here. It doesn't have to be win-lose. And I want to make sure I fully understand what you're saying. Labor mobility, you mean allowing for, for example, a seasonal farm worker to cross the border from Mexico into central California and work on a field in Tulare County for a few months, live legally, you know, work, gain income, then go to Mexico and have a clear path into and out of the U.S. instead of trying to kind of find a back door. A safe, orderly process regulated uh, is in everybody's interest. Doris Meisner, I wonder if you have seen in either this administration or previous administrations any kind of sophistication to the kind of issues that Mr. Regelbrugge is talking about. It seems like having that kind of labor mobility makes good sense. Why hasn't it happened? That's the million-dollar question. Uh, the answer is politics. The answer is, in my opinion, ultimately a failure of the Congress. And the failure of the Congress has to do, to some extent, with the fact that for both political parties, they have preferred to keep this issue of immigration reform open as a wedge issue against the other as compared with the need to find a center and agree on a compromise. Immigration legislation and policy in this country has never succeeded without a strong bipartisan vote. Gotcha. But I do just want people to know that most people in the United States agree that immigrants coming here for either work purposes or immigration would be fine as long as they are legal. What is not understood is that there is no legal line in which to place yourself if you want to come to do work in the United States. We have 5,000 visas available, only 5,000, for lower skilled workers to come into the country. And that has been the case since 1990. During 1990? 1990. We are talking about an entirely different economy, an entirely different era. And so the labor market demand that is part of our economy at the present time cannot be met with the current immigration laws legally. That's one of the primary reasons that they need to be reformed. Well, then let me, Peter Scary, bring you in on that. I wonder what we do about that. I guess I'm having deja vu all over again, because to me, this sounds like a road we've gone down before. This sounds like the Bracero program. And we know how that ended. That helped us get us into the fix we're in. Explain what that is for people who don't know. The Bracero program was basically a guest worker program that was initiated uh, during World War II when there were labor shortages in agriculture. It was a regulated legal flow of workers into the United States from Mexico who were not supposed to stay permanently. Lots of them did. Temporary workers often were not temporary. They wound up staying. Or they stuck around and, and became illegal, which is another part of the problem. 
So I'm not sure why what is being proposed now is, is not going to wind up going down the same route. I take the demand for labor in the agricultural sector seriously, but I'm, I'm just not at all convinced that this makes much sense, and it's, just, it's too easy. What would you point to that would give me or the American public confidence that this would work out differently? Doris? I do believe that when I talk and others about immigration reform and about labor market needs in the United States, that we're talking about things that are far more sophisticated and current than a Bracero program and the way that the Bracero program operated. I mean, labor mobility is very much a feature of globalization of the ways in which economies connect and are related. And there are ways that you can deal with labor mobility that have been shown to be more effective. Now, that is not to say that we should simply be saying 500,000 people a year ought to be able to come to the United States for seasonal work purposes. There definitely, you do not want to simply allow for a legal flow that affirms what has been an, an illegal flow. There does need to be pressure on the labor market, and we've seen that the pressure on the labor market in agriculture has brought about incredibly important changes in agriculture, much more automation, far more um, effective methods of picking, uh, less actual field work, and more sophisticated and safer methods of growing. So immigration policy should be keeping pressure on the labor market. But we are now so far from having any real alignment between our immigration system and what this new modern economy represents that until we change our laws and really have that debate, we are doomed. Let's get to a question from our audience. I'm Joe. I'm a law enforcement officer here in the district. We've seen 2016 be defined in a lot of ways politically by economic populism, economic nationalism. What's the future look like if the trade liberalization we've seen over the last 20, 30 years is reversed? Peter, what do you think? Well, I guess I would challenge the basis of the question to some extent. I don't think that we're just dealing with economic populism. Certainly that's a part of it, but I think there's a, some more fundamental dynamics at work whereby large numbers of Americans feel that their values and their way of life is not only changing, but being profoundly disrespected and marginalized. It strikes me that a lot of what we're talking about are relatively marginal dislocations that are caused by immigrants and labor strains in the labor market that are painful, but could be negotiated a whole lot more easily than we have and a whole lot better than we have if the people experiencing these dislocations, that is to say the non-immigrant Americans, hadn't been told at the same time that they were racist, that they were backward, that they didn't understand what was going on, that somehow they were deluded. Well, let's be clear, Peter, some of them probably are a little racist. I mean, there, some of the rhetoric around, I mean, remember how Donald Trump began his presidential campaign. He descended the gold escalator at Trump Tower 
and talked about Mexico not sending their best. They're sending crime, drugs, rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. Well, I'm not going to defend the, the rhetoric of Donald Trump. Oh, no, no I'm not asking and, you and, to, but and that we rhetoric need a longer program what it means to be, above all for me to discuss it with you, what being a little racist is. Right. I, I didn't know there were degrees of, of either, it's, I, you're a racist or you're not. Yeah, that's kind of what I think. Yeah. But, but that rhetoric is out there, and we, we have to reckon with that. Yeah, but I think the usual answer from, again, I'm obviously making an anti-elite argument here all evening, that our elite's answer to these problems is that if you don't like the way it's going, you're a racist. And people begin to hear that and resent it because there are lots of concrete problems, housing problems, public service problems. It isn't just jobs. You know, this has had a huge impact on American society. Now, I do grant you that. I think there's a lack in nuance that there are people on all sides of this conversation who tend to bludgeon one another with the facts and with the information and we need a little bit more understanding. On the other side of this next break, we'll focus on solutions to these issues, NAFTA and immigration and so forth. I'm Joshua Johnson. You are listening to Beyond the Border from America Abroad. That's Joshua Johnson, host of WAMU's program 1A, leading our town hall discussion. This event was recorded in May, but the online conversation continues. If you'd like to weigh in, you can tweet us using the hashtag BeyondTheBorder. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. On today's program, we're featuring our Washington, D.C., Mexico City town hall discussion recorded this May. Our panelists in D.C. are Peter Scarry, professor of political science at Boston College and frequent writer for the Weekly Standard, Doris Meisner, former INS commissioner. She's now a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute, and Jose Cardenas, formerly of the State Department and USAID. He now runs Vision Americas a consulting firm advising on foreign investments. And in Mexico City, we're joined by Rodrigo Cervantes, Mexico Bureau Chief for Public Radio Station KJZZ in Phoenix, as well as Monica Serrano, Professor of International Relations from the College of Mexico. Let's turn back to our town hall host, Joshua Johnson, from the WAMU program 1A. Back now for our final segment. Let's get to a question from our audience. Hi. Hi, my name is Ellen Fritz. I'm just a member of the public interested in Mexico and American relations. Mexico has a presidential election next year with a leftist anti-American candidate gaining momentum. If he's elected, how will that not only affect U.S.-Mexico relations, but the stability of the region as a whole? Excellent question. What do we think about the elections next year? It would be a disaster, frankly, if Mr. Lopez Obrador, known as AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. And yes, you are correct. He, he's a, a populist. He will play the anti-American card to further his political career. This is somebody who is not going to be, let's just put it uh, delicately, uh, amenable to deep-seated cooperation with the United States. He will go in the different direction. Doris, could I get your take on that as well? Well, López Obrador has been a, an important political figure for some while in Mexico, predating what's gone on in the United States, but he's been on the fringe. And so things that have happened in the United States and the very confrontational approach that's being taken in the United States towards Mexico is strengthening his hand. I can personally tell you as, as a journalist that 
it has been very interesting to see. There is like an eye-opening moment for both societies, the American society and the Mexican society. Uh, there is a very simple yet impactful example in the economy, which is the peso. The way the peso has been behaving throughout the Trump era. As a candidate, whenever he said something about Mexico, the peso would become super, super cheap against the dollar, right? But what we're seeing now is that more people involved in the economy are actually questioning the relationship. Why does Mexico have this dependency to the United States? Why did we allow the economy to depend almost 80% on our foreign trade with the United States? Can we find other alternatives? So part of the transformation and what we're going to be witnessing is precisely how uh, both countries are going to adapt to this new reality. Mexico is already looking for new trade agreements or to strengthen trade agreements. You're also seeing how the policies are changing. You can see how the society is also trying to have like a different approach to, to the American society. One last point about the pessimism that I think keeps us on a very low spirit. And, and I think that pessimism has a lot to do with what is happening in Mexico and little with Trump or what is happening in the US. I think that we can't put all the blame on Mr. Trump or the flawed policies of the US government and how they impact our security, the dynamics of violence that we are seeing change in ways that we were not being able to imagine a few years ago. I think a lot has to do with what is going on with our own politicians here and the level of corruption, the unbridled corruption that we are seeing in our country. Time for a few more, actually let's get to one more question from Mexico. Uh, hello, thank you so much for having me. My name is Claudia de Almeida and we as Mexicans are raised with a very restraining image of the United States because based on um, the growing and violent, violent shift on the treatment that many um, uh, the, the immigrants have been receive, receiving in the United States, Mexicans have been led to believe that the United States has an actual interest on not allowing Mexico to progress as a country because it's actually beneficial to the United States. I just wanted to know your thoughts on that, um, that impression that the people, ha the people has. As you were speaking, I was thinking one question that is often put to us. How many of you have relatives living in the US? I would put that question to you. So we're seeing like a... Almost a majority. Well, yeah. Probably the majority, if not almost everyone. Right? I think that shows that whether we like it or not, our destinies were together. Having said that, the unfortunate thing is that those destinies are very often, 80% of that destiny will be driven by these social forces, but 20% will depend on the responsibility of politicians and how politicians drive the relationship and the regional landscape. Jose? If Mexico doesn't grow, then that is only going to generate more pressures for Mexicans to leave and that is obviously to cross our borders into the United States. A prosperous Mexico is across the board in the interests of the United States, 
no matter how, how you define those interests. Maybe as a way of wrapping this up, there are clearly no easy solutions. We've talked about some possibilities in the time that we've spent. What do you want people to keep in mind as they consider the future of this relationship? Doris, would you mind answering first? We should be very careful not to be scapegoating immigrants as the reason for these bigger problems. Immigrants tend to be the personification of things that are not immigration. And so the people that live among us and that are in a situation without legal status and the lack of alignment between our immigration policies and our labor market, we should deal with those issues straight up. We have neglected them. And the broader questions of who's neglected in the society, fixing immigration is not going to fix that problem. Peter? Well, I agree completely that immigrants can't be held responsible for everything that's, that's wrong with American society. But I would disagree in the sense that I think we haven't owned up to what immigration, what its impacts are. We can't have it both ways. We think immigration is a transforming development at the end of the 20th and the beginning of the 21st century, but we somehow think it's going to be easy to do. It's not easy to do, and it has enormous impacts on the rest of American society, and I don't think it's easily isolated the way I think Doris just suggested. And Jose? On the future of U.S.-Mexico bilateral relations, there's no question that we're hitting a bit of turbulence in our journey together. But um, I think that in the end, we have too much at stake, too much in common, to allow all of the great progress over the last 20 years to dissipate. So I remain optimistic, but it's not going to happen on its own. It's going to continue to take people of goodwill to keep this relationship together and prosperous. Well, hopefully the people of goodwill who have taken part in this conversation have learned something, have gained something, and we thank the people of goodwill here on this panel for sharing your thoughts and helping us think through this issue as part of Beyond the Border, the future of U.S.-Mexico relations, a co-production of America Abroad and 1A. Many thanks to our panel here in Washington, Boston College Professor Peter Scarry, Doris Meissner of the Migration Policy Institute, Jose Cardenas with Visión Americas, and in Mexico City, Rodrigo Cervantes of KJZZ Public Radio and Professor Monica Serrano of the College of Mexico. I'm Joshua Johnson. Thanks for listening. And that was host Joshua Johnson wrapping up our town hall discussion, which was recorded in early May. The conversation you just heard continues online at PRI.org. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Shoshi Shmulevitz. Audio engineering support was provided by Flan Williams and Mario Saavedra at KCRW and the team at Fabrica Online in Mexico City. Video production provided by Windrose Media. Special thanks to George Washington University for hosting our DC audience. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on Facebook, or by visiting our website at PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for the show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you.
RI Public Radio International.